Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You can email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, as it's Mother's Day today, I wanted to explore the complexities of the role, which is a gift, but not always easy to attain or to experience. And I can't think of a better guest than psychotherapist Anne Morgan of Sparkback.ie, who I first heard on Aideen Finnegan's podcast, How to Pivot. And I just loved her honesty and her advice. And no regrets is often associated with grabbing life and living it in the best way. But in his new book, The Power of Regret, author Daniel Pink talks about how looking back is essential to us moving forward and learning from our experiences. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? I've been good. Thank you to all of you who have registered for the hike next Sunday, the 3rd of April. It was so lovely to see all the registrations coming in and feel the energy build. Numbers are limited, so I can't bring everyone, but you will all be contacted either way and kept informed of any other outings I plan. I'm hoping to invite you to sea swim, forest bathe, do some yoga, ice baths, meditation, all sorts. So watch this space. I had a really interesting week this week. I spoke at the Changemaker Schools Network Conference at DCU in Dublin. 19 schools were awarded for innovation, creativity, leadership and teamwork. I heard of forest schools, beach schools, students campaigning for classmates to avoid deportation and winning, social enterprise, eco projects and it was just the most gorgeous day. I was speaking because of my podcast, Changemakers, and I spoke about the importance of giving back for our health and well-being. A couple of years back, I spent a weekend in London with my husband and 10,000 others and Tony Robbins, who is renowned as a thought leader and business strategist. And he was talking on stage about finding your purpose, letting go of trauma, finding your passion in life and making it happen. But he also spoke about the importance of giving back to serve is how he phrases it and how essential that is to our overall well-being and satisfaction in life. He worked with some of the most successful sports and business people in the world, people at the top of their game with endless success and wealth, himself included. And it wasn't enough once you got there. They all looked for something more. And that came from giving back. And I'm hearing that message everywhere now. One of the guests on this show who had a major impact on me was Professor Jim Lucy, clinical professor of psychiatry at Trinity College in Dublin and a consultant psychiatrist at St. Patrick's University Hospital. He was medical director of St. Patrick's Mental Health Hospital for 11 years and he came on to talk about his new book, A Whole New Way of Living. And in a way, I was expecting him to talk about treatments, medication and therapy. And of course, that is very much a part of his work. He's written books on those topics. But he spoke about the pillars of health, nutrition, movement, sleep, but also connection and joy and how we need to look after all areas of our life to be mentally well. He spoke of connectedness, hope and optimism, identity, meaning and purpose and empowerment and how our overall health is how we need to look at it, not mental health being something in the ether. It's all very much connected and as one. 
So now giving back is not only important for our outer world, it's just as important for our inner world. And for Changemakers this week, I interviewed a gorgeous woman in Cork who is taking in Ukrainian people into her home, into her community and is part of a network now making sure their settlement is as successful as possible. I hope to have her on this show too, as she's looking to mobilise communities across the country to help get donations and support where they need to go. But she was talking to me about the kindness of people, the action that's being taken. And she said there is a lot wrong with this world, something we can all attest to and feel heavy from. But she said there's also a lot right with this world. And it was so uplifting to hear. Likewise, I am loving the spring vibes at the moment. I actually don't do well with the dark and the hibernation of winter. I resist it at every turn instead of just enjoying it. But I have felt this week pulled outside into the warm weather and it has also been a much needed lift. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. In his latest book, The Power of Regret, social psychology author Daniel Pink looks at what type of regret most haunts us and says that instead of fearing them, they should become our inspiration, teaching us what we value most and helping us move forward in a more informed and positive way. He's on the line now. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for having me on the show. Daniel, your book is very interesting because the slogan or mantra, if you want to call it, no regrets, has become almost a representation of a brave and brilliant life lived somewhere along the (laughs) lines of YOLO. But you think through the study you've done in this book that having no regrets is nonsense or even dangerous. Can you explain that a little? Sure. It's not only what I think, Claire, it's actually what 50 years of science tells us. Um, This idea that we should never look backward, that we should have no regrets is unscientific and also a dangerous blueprint for living. Um, We have decades of research now showing that everybody has regrets. Uh, Regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings have. Now, again, regret isn't pleasant. It, it makes us uncomfortable. It hurts a little bit. Uh, and that raises a question, which is, why is this thing that's so unpleasant so ubiquitous? And the answer is, because it's useful if we treat it right. And the problem is we haven't been treating it right. We've been sold a bill of goods that we should just ignore our regrets. And when that doesn't happen, too many people get caught up and wallow in their regrets, ruminate over their regrets. What we should be doing is, confronting our regrets, because when we do that, once again, science tells us that it is a powerful engine for working smarter and living better. Is it because it almost seems pointless? Because you may say, I regret not taking that job. I regret not asking that person out. I regret whatever the rest of that sentence is. And there's not really much point in you giving it much weight because you're never really going to know what the outcome had have been had you made a different decision. Sure, that makes that makes perfect sense. But the thing, the the value of regret is not knowing the outcome if you had done something differently. It's learning um, why you made that mistake in the first place and deriving lessons from that to guide your, your, your future decisions. So if you have, if you have, if you say, oh my gosh, if only I had it, when, when I talk to people about their regrets, the people have interviewed at, at their regrets, they don't say, oh, I took this job a few years ago and it was a total disaster and I wasted two years. 
they don't then say, oh, if only I had taken if only I had taken another job, I would be a millionaire now. They say, oh, man, I really screwed up. I really regret that I made that choice. And so if we actually just scrutinize that choice, why did you make that choice? Did you not do enough research and due diligence ahead of time? Did you not know yourself well enough? Was there a culture that wasn't a good match for you? When we start scrutinizing the reasons for that error, um, you can then draw lessons from it that you can apply to future decisions. Yeah, there's learning there. So talk to me about the World Regret Survey. You spoke to 16,000 people in 105 countries. How did the survey work? What did you ask them and, and what did you learn? Well, I so I, I set up a website, as you say, Claire, called World, the World Regret, worldregretsurvey.com. And I simply asked people to share their regret, to share one big regret in their life. Uh, I, I put up a couple of tweets. I put something in my email newsletter. And before I knew it, I had... 15,000. Um, we quickly got to 16,000. We're now ha- up o- over 19,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. It's amazing. And I just asked people to share their regret. And, and the fact that people were so willing to share their regret itself tells us something. It tells us that people want to talk about this issue. It tells us that people want to try to make sense of their own regrets. But I think the most remarkable thing about that research is that what I found in reading through these thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of regrets is that around the world, people seem to have the same four core regrets that irrespective of nationality or gender or even to some extent age, the same four regrets kept coming up over and over again around the world. So what were those four core regrets? Well, one of them was what I call foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are people who made small choices earlier in their life that accumulate to have bad consequences later in their life. So it's people who say um, smoked and regret doing that. People who didn't exercise or take care of their bodies. Uh, a lot of regrets about people who spent too much and saved too little. Uh, the second category are boldness regrets. And you mentioned couple of those earlier. These are regrets, if only I'd taken the chance. So people who regret not speaking up, people who regret not asking somebody out on a date, there were a lot of those. People who regret not traveling, people who regret uh, not starting their own business, a lot of those as well. So again, a lot of these regrets begin at a juncture. You, In this particular case, the juncture is you can play it safe or you can take the chance. When people don't take the chance, not always, but often they regret it and not because they think there's going to that somehow they would have had an incredible outcome. Part of it is that at that moment, they didn't take their shot and they want to know what would have happened, even if what would have happened wasn't necessarily amazing. Final two categories, moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing. So we had a lot of regrets about bullying, marital infidelity, that sort of thing. And then finally, connection regrets. Connection regrets are, if only I'd reached out, these are regrets about the full spectrum of relationships we have in our lives. And when these relationships come apart, and they usually come apart slowly and undramatically, um, and we don't do something to bring them together, uh, that's a source of deep and lingering regret for many, many people. It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, you must have really enjoyed getting stuck into this because not only are you amassing information for this book, but it's a real peer into the psyche of other people's lives, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you said that because you you would think that that, you know, reading through this database of regrets every morning when I came into my office and, oh, they're like, and here are 100 more, not 200 more would be a little bit of a downer, but it actually wasn't. In, in a way, it was sort of uplifting. I know it sounds peculiar, but what I discovered slowly is that when, when people tell you what they regret the most, they're telling you what they value the most. And that's the other thing about, about regret. Regret clarifies what matters to us. So if I have somebody, let's say one of those moral regrets, I have people who are still bothered by the fact that they stole candy from a grocery store when they were 12 years old and now they're in their 60s, or people who regret bullying kids when they were young, or people who regret not asking somebody out on a date 20 years ago. The fact that those things linger in people's minds and hearts is a signal to them about what really matters to them in life. And so um, it was a fascinating, it was, it was somewhere between somewhere between like an MRI and a confessional each morning looking at that stuff. Yeah, because there's a few people on Instagram now do confession box and it's anonymous. And, you know, you just can't help but click the next one, the next one, the yeah. next one to just hear what people have to say. So how should we frame regret or handle regret to make sure we get the learning out of it? Well, what we need to do is follow a relatively simple and straightforward three-step process. And this is the thing, this is the big problem here is that no one ever teaches us how to how to deal with negative emotions. And, and certainly in secular society, um, we do a pretty bad job of it. So at least you know Catholicism has confession and repentance. That's a way to deal with things like regret. Judaism has a day of atonement. That's a way to deal with regret. Um, but beyond that, we're, we let we we let people adrift in their negative emotions, so they don't know what's happening with them, uh, and they and they and they think they're somehow outliers when they're not. And so the best approach is three steps, as I said, which is you can think of as inward, outward, forward. Inward, outward, forward. Inward is you have to reframe how you think about yourself and your regret. When we talk to ourselves in the face of missteps and screw ups, we are brutal. We are cruel. What we should do instead is treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Look at ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize, as, as you said, with Confession Box and all these regrets in the world, regret survey are showing that it's part of the human condition. So essentially, treat ourselves better, forgive ourselves, treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. Second step, outward. There is a lot to be said for disclosing our regrets because disclosing is a way of unburdening. Uh, what we also know about when we disclose our vulnerabilities is that people tend to like us more, not less. So it's a way to build affinity. But the most important thing when we disclose, either in spoken word or in writing, is that emotions, by their very nature, are amorphous and blobby. And that's what makes positive emotions feel so good. But it's also what makes negative emotions feel so terrible. And so when we convert those blobby negative emotions into words, we the words are more concrete and they're less fearsome. And so it helps begin the sense-making process. So, so treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Disclose and make sense of them through language. And finally, the most important thing is you got to extract a lesson from them. And the way to do that is to zoom out. We tend to be pretty bad at solving our own problems and pretty good at solving other people's problems. So essentially zoom out and think of yourself as somebody else. So 
even goofy things like talking to yourself in the third person or thinking about what the you of 10 years from now is going to care about, or even the single best decision-making tool that I know, which is if you're stuck, ask yourself, what would you tell your best friend to do? And when you ask people that question, they always know. So again, inward, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Outward, disclose, use language to make sense of it. Forward, zoom out and extract a lesson from it. And once you do that a few times, it becomes much more of a habit. And it's a way to enlist these regrets, which are part of the human condition, as a force for good rather than as something to ignore or something that will bring you down. One of your final chapters is anticipating regret. Is it something we can prepare for? And do you want us to avoid it and then therefore avoid the learning? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, so I, I think it's a, I think it's generally healthy to try to anticipate our regrets and avoid them. But as always, we have to do it right. So sometimes when we anticipate our regrets, we make risk averse choices. So we, you know, in very small things, we don't switch answers on a test because we're going to we know we're going to regret deeply switching from a, a wrong answer, a right answer to a wrong answer. Uh, and we can picture that happening. Uh, we, we regret uh, moving lines in the queues in the grocery store because we can picture, oh, I remember the time that I was in a went from a, a line that to an even worse line. And so we can sometimes make risk averse decisions. The other thing is that we can't anticipate and minimize all of our regrets. What we need to do is we need to anticipate the, the, the regrets that we know we're going to have. And here's where that World Regret Survey gives us some guidance. Uh, it's a pretty safe bet, Claire, that in 10 years from now, when you, you know, have me back for the 10 year anniversary of our interview here, right? When yes. we, 10 years from now, neither one of us is gonna regret our choice of dinner tonight. Right, whether we had a you know hamburger or fish and chips or whatever, um, neither one of us is really going to regret that we that this year we bought a blue car or a gray car or a green car. What we are going to regret because we're like most people are if we don't reach out to someone we care about and maybe in ten years it's too late. What we are going to regret are making decisions where we make an immoral choice where we do the wrong thing. What we are going to regret is not making not taking a sensible risk and using our limited time on this planet to learn and grow and do something um, and everything else doesn't really matter that much so what we want to do is we want to anticipate these four core regrets and actually just chill out about everything else uh, and if we do that we can uh, we can take this broad set of learning um, and use it to as I said before to work smarter and live better well, Daniel, your enthusiasm for this topic is matched by the sheer volume of work that you put into this, the research, <laughs> the examples, the stories. And I promise you, it doesn't read like a, a tome. It's full of anecdotes. It's a really easy, interesting read. It's called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backwards Moves Us Forward. Daniel Pink, thank you so much for coming on. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Combining over a decade of experience in psychotherapy, psychology, coaching and mentoring, Anne Morgan is an accredited life coach and psychotherapist for women using an integrative therapeutic approach. Her company Sparkback helps women turn burnout to bright again. And while it can happen to anyone at any time, burnout often happens to mothers as they put so many needs ahead of their own to their detriment. I heard Anne speak on the podcast How to Pivot and I was so moved by her words I knew I wanted to have her on this show and I can think of no better day than on Mother's Day. Anne, you're very welcome to the show.
Thanks, Claire. It's great to be on. I feel sometimes it's hard to talk about the realities of motherhood. I know that's changing, but it is a gift that isn't afforded to everybody. And I know Mm. people struggle to become parents and you have that in the forefront of your mind and you adore them and know you're lucky to have them. So all of that makes it feel like the wrong thing to do to say, I'm not doing well here. I'm struggling. I'm not enjoying this all the time. And yet the more we do that, the stronger we become. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you know, the the conversation is changing a bit. You know, we are seeing more people that are willing to kind of have those conversations a little bit more about some of the difficult sides of it. But as you said, it does instinctively, I think it feels very uncomfortable for us to do that. And I know even for me to speak up about it, it felt very difficult to do that, you know. But at the same time, this is all part of of being human. You know, not everything is going to be one-sided. And I think we go into motherhood with the expectation based on like what we see or what we grow up hearing that this is such a gift. This is something that you should be so grateful for. It's bliss. It's it's all the good things. And of course it is all the good things. But you can't have one without the other. And I think, you know, unfortunately for a lot of new mothers, they only hear about the one side. So when the other side comes along, it feels like they must be doing something wrong for this to be happening, for them to be feeling this way or automatically, you know, this must be depression or, you know, there has to be something wrong with my situation here. Whereas I think if we had more of these conversations, new mothers in particular would realise like, this is all part of it. You know, this is a completely natural reaction to the fact that so much has changed in my life right now. And I have a couple of friends who are doing psychology degrees and Mm. I I hear from both of them that a lot of what goes on in our life comes back to our relationship with our parents and in particular with our mothers. Yeah. Why is that do you think? I think it's it's a really common thing I guess when you have a baby that there's a lot of things that almost you had forgotten about. It's almost like new old information starts coming back to you. And I mean, when you think about it, it's the first time that we've been in that mother-child relationship. So in that mother-child relationship since we were the child, you know, since we were the baby. And it can bring about a lot of things, even that we don't have any language for, you know. So when we're interacting with our babies, sometimes there's almost this memory that comes up, but we can't put words on it. It's just a feeling or a sense that is reminding us of our own experience being the baby. And I think that sense of vulnerability as a new mother, you know, we don't really know what we're doing. Even though we've read the books, it's very different to when we're actually in that situation. So we feel quite vulnerable. We can feel quite helpless sometimes. And that automatically then brings us back to that time when we originally felt quite vulnerable and quite helpless and we were depending on somebody else. So that's why a lot of people would kind of report to me that they feel that they have a... a, a need to have their mother around or they feel that there is some strong calling to connect with their mother. And, you know, I have clients that have lost mothers as well and that becomes really deeply painful for them when they have their first baby because that sense of lack is is really, it's more evident than ever before, you know. So they're, they're feeling all those feelings that remind them of when they were young and they were helpless and... And yet they don't have that mother figure there. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is where we kind of need to do better 
for mothers because, you know, we can't step in and mother them, but we should be taking care of them because this is a very vulnerable stage for them where it's not enough to just kind of say, oh, well, here's the breastfeeding group or here's, you know, your your six week check in and that's enough. You know, there there definitely needs to be more because they need that sense of of holding and support and containment. Because the way we mother and I want to say parent as well, and I know we're going to talk about the system and and what needs to change there to support parents and kids and, and, and mothers fall under that. But it being Mother's Day, I suppose we're focusing in on the mother mm. and there is a difference in that you carry the child. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes I wish my husband could have done it, but I always say I would have sooner done labour than watched labour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think we put a lot on that. There's a huge weight that comes with being the mother in the way yeah. that we talk about what is expected of a mother. And I don't think that's serving fathers either, but they're supposed to be this massive emotional connection and the shock that you hear somebody, if you hear a mother left, if she, you know, yeah. met somebody else and the marriage broke down and she went to live somewhere else and people are like, what? We just expect women to have this huge emotional connection. Yeah. Um, and, and that is a lot, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. And, you know, it doesn't do us any favours in the sense that you know, if you're somebody that comes from a background or maybe it's in your work life or maybe it's just always who you have been as a woman where you take on quite a lot, you like to do a lot of the things yourself because you feel nobody can do it better than you can. If that's kind of your personality, then when the baby comes along, if you've been reading or seeing examples of where women are doing the majority of everything, you know, then that's what you kind of tend to do as a mother. And it's very hard to let go of control. I mean, when you think about it, those I know from my own perspective, like when when my daughter came along, I went from, you know, having my own business and feeling like I had that sense of control in my professional life to just feeling like I had control over nothing. You know, I, I was trying to kind of make sense of of what Lily needed and what each cry meant. And there was so much that I didn't have control over. So I found that I had this tendency to take control of the doing. So it's almost like sometimes I didn't let my partner actually participate as much as he wanted to because I kind of thought, well, I should be doing this. Like, I I need to do this. I'll do it right. And I put a, a huge amount of pressure on myself, which definitely contributed to to my negative or to my mental health suffering, you know. So definitely, I think... We're seeing so many examples of women that are trying to do it all. You know, you're hearing that that whole slogan of like, we can have it all and we can be superwoman and all of that kind of thing. But I was at a workshop one day and I heard a, a really interesting statement that struck me was that feminism did so much for women, but it forgot mothers. And I thought, wow, like that was really interesting to just sit with that. You know, we have done so much in terms of progress for women but for those that are at home raising kids they're the ones that are actually feeling so isolated there you know there's that kind of sense of I'm still here what about me you know and they don't have as many of those kind of supports and women around them as they used to particularly during the pandemic so and the way we parent and and mother now has changed like you said we need to make them feel supported Mm. and historically they'd say it takes a village to raise yeah. a child. And we would have had, 
kids earlier and the grandparents. I mean, look, geez, we all lean on the grandparents. I lean on, on mine, my kids' grandparents all the time. So they are still very much involved. But quite often they'd all be living in the same house and the kids would all be together. Whereas now in the modern age, as you say, you're trying to work, parent, socialise, do your meditation, you know, hone your body in whatever chosen form that is, be on top of your relationship, make sure that's singing. And it's a lot to juggle and it's impossible, I find, to have all the plates spinning at the one time. If I'm being a really good mum, I've taken my eye off the ball somewhere with work. If I'm really into work, they're being told to hang on a second and just handed a screen. Likewise, my husband, that plate crashes to the ground every now and then. Yeah. But that's normal. I I don't know who has it all going at the same time. That's exactly it. You know, I find that one of the, the most important things for us to do is to just be flexible with ourselves, with the expectations that we have about what we can and can't do. You know, I, I often hear a lot of people will come to me and say, like, I'm, I just want balance. I want that work-life balance. And to be honest, the more I hear that, the more I kind of think it, it's so important to ask the person, well, what is a work-life balance to you? Because it changes. You know, there are some times where you're going to be needed at home more. Maybe one of the kids is sick. So you're going to have to be flexible with your career. You can't always have this equilibrium. It doesn't work like that. You know, at some point, something is going to have to shift or you're going to have to adapt in order to focus on something else. So I definitely think one of the things that, you know, and again, I'm just, I'm speaking from my own experience here, is that I just found that I was taking on everything. You know, I noticed that all of a sudden, a lot of my friendships, like, where were they gone? So, you know, I wasn't hearing from them as much. So then I kind of thought, okay, I need to make more of an effort. Then your relationship, you know, you're both exhausted, you're bickering more, you know. So then I kind of thought, okay, it's my job to try and work on this. And then it's it's my job to be the mother and it's it's my job that I have to do all the accounts and work and I have to go back and and people need me. So... I was taken on so much and the thoughts of somebody saying to me, oh, you need to do self-care. For me, that was like, that's another add-on. I need somebody to take things off my plate, not pile them back on. So flexibility, I think for me, has been key to learn that, you know, sometimes I will have that little bit more space to take on something else. But generally, if I'm going to take on something else, I know I have to let go of something to make space for that. And, you know, what is the, I guess if you're juggling, think of what the glass ball is and what the rubber ball is. What's the one, if you drop the rubber ball, it'll bounce back up. You know, that's okay. But, you know, the glass ball is what's really important. You don't really want to drop that. So that's the way I look at it. I'm always like, what's the rubber ball that I can drop here? (laughs) You know, that things aren't going to fall apart. I love that. I always picture the plates. Absolutely. In the... the, um, circus or wherever I first saw that they seem to have a pile of them and they just keep putting them back (laughs) so I suppose I need to think that some of them cannot be replaced. Yeah. And can we talk a bit about the system then because we've touched on a little of the the commonalities that run through motherhood and the struggles that can come Mm. for any parent or guardian but we're focusing on on mums today. Uh, What about the system then because I was really had my eyes opened during maternity leave That was the first time I had felt an inequality in my life and a resentment of my husband. And 
that was because I was doing the maternity leave. And I loved that bubble. I had a great time. I really felt for women that went through it in the pandemic because I connected with people. I had my maxi cozy slung on my arm going here, there and everywhere. Um, and there was such a lovely time to step out of, of work for that time and just enjoy this little person I w- was in love with. But I became the house manager. I became the baby manager, the house manager, the life admin manager. And yet his work was continuing the same. His social work was continuing the same. Um, And look, he can't physically breastfeed. There were things that I could just resent him for that he couldn't change. But do you think since then, I mean, that's 10 years on, have we begun to change now that we're changing the paternity laws and we're sharing leave? Do you think that's starting to happen? I would hope so, but I think it's it's going to be quite telling now when people start going back to the office and we see, you know, can we actually maintain that level of flexibility where we're giving people more choice to take things up? You know, I, I know, I remember looking at some of the research in the past about the uptake of paternity leave, that it's great that we're offering that to, that, to dads, but how many of them are actually taking that up. And I think one of the really good things about the fact that we've had this time, this pandemic, we've had to adjust and adapt and work from home, is that I think a lot of men have actually realised, okay, it is nice to be able to work from home and on my lunch, spend a bit of time with the kids. You know, they they haven't really had that experience of what that can be like. So I know even my partner found it really nice to be able to be home and see more of Lily. He wasn't always out and about and kind of getting home for the the putting her down or the bath time. He was getting to spend a bit more time with her. So as a family, it was actually really nice for us. And, you know, when I first had Lily, which was four years ago, it was very different. My situation would have been very like you. You know, I, I kind of noticed like, OK, why, why is this all falling on my shoulders like you, I hadn't experienced inequality. I feel very privileged to be able to say that I hadn't experienced that really in my career beforehand. But it was very clear to me, you know, when I had all of these different things that were my responsibility and he could just go back to work. You know, well, well, how is that fair? <laughs> you know, even though I wanted to spend the time with her, but I was like this, you know, this seems a little bit unequal to me. Um, so definitely, I think then when the pandemic hit and he had to stay at home a bit more, it made him realise what he was had been missing out on. And it made me realise that, OK, this is what it's like to have a little bit more support at home. Um, so I'm really hoping that now when people start going back to the workplace, that this is something that that fathers actually do take up a little bit more or or that because it is it's a great opportunity but as well as that I think we can't just assume that all women do want to take extended leave or you know they want to stay off for that whole time some women may have gotten a promotion before they went on leave they may really want to go back to work there may be that you know their job is a big part of their identity and there should be no judgment around that if a woman does want to go back well, then she should be able to. And it should be the case that, you know, maybe it is a normal conversation for a man to say, OK, well, can I take my paternity leave now to allow her to go back, to transition back into the workplace? Because that's where she feels valued. That's where she feels a sense of who she is. You know, that part is very important. It's easy to say, why would a woman want to go back to work so soon? But 
this is all about like how do we actually help them from a mental health perspective if that is a really big part of their identity and they feel very lost without that then they should be able to do that you know it's it's this is the thing this is the danger of assuming that we know what's best for working parents we really don't it's a very individual thing and i think as people start going back to the workplace now this is why it is so important that teams have these conversations, managers have these conversations that we don't bring in this one size fits all of, OK, you know, we'll allow you to work four days from home. Like for me, the days that I used to go into the office, I'd nearly be skipping in because I'd get to sit on the dart and read my book. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that you know, that commute was very important to me. That time when I went into the office and I felt like me again felt very important to me. So I wouldn't have wanted to work from home four or five days a week. A bit of a balance between both would have been great. But, you know, that's the danger of assumption is that, you know, we, we may be getting somebody to stay at home where that's not the ideal condition for them or the right environment. Yeah. And that's the, the centre, I think, of, of equality is that there's this choice. Yeah, exactly. That you're able to have that, that freedom to choose. Yeah. And is that what you're talking to corporates about now? Because as well as one-on-one clients, you're, you're going into organisations, which is amazing that, you know, you're pushing a an already open door to get yeah. in there, that they're interested in hearing. Because obviously childcare is a, is a huge issue Huge, yeah. that it costs so much that when you have a two income family quite often you sit down and say well who earns more and if that happens to be the man if you're in a heterosexual relationship whoever has the highest earnings one stays at home yeah and to not have that be a choice to have that be almost a necessity because there's no point in you giving it all to the creche who are doing amazing work. So is that what we need? Because often I think of the American model, which doesn't sound great that they're back within Mm. eight weeks and their babies are being brought to them for for breastfeeding and then they get back to work. I was a mess at eight weeks. I don't know how I would have managed with that. But there's creches on site. There are options there. And as you say, there are women who would thrive in that environment. And once the kids are okay and they're still okay, everything works. Yeah. So that's going to be a big part of the jigsaw, isn't it? Fixing childcare. It is, it is. And this is the thing, like we have to be realistic in the sense that I do hear this a lot from women. They will say to me when they come to me, like the childcare thing, that's a huge issue. And unfortunately, I wish that I had more power over that side that I could help them with that. That is definitely something that we really need to prioritise because it's it's just not good enough. And not only that, but this pandemic, as you said, you know, in a in a household where maybe the woman might have been part time or mightn't have been on as high an income as her partner, if there was homeschooling to be done throughout the pandemic, it was normally the woman that had to step back because, you know, she hadn't got the larger income or she wasn't working as many hours. So I think now as we return to the office, we're actually going to see a very big gap, you know, where there's a lot of women that did have to step back. And, you know, that were forced out because they had no choice. There was no choice there during the pandemic and it has been very hard. So for me, it's great now to see organisations reaching out and acknowledging the fact that, you know, yes, a lot has been done over the last decade towards equality in the workplace. But unfortunately, this pandemic has knocked that back about five years. So now we're kind of at that point where let's not talk about it again for 10 years what are we actually going to do about it? And for me, one of the things that's really nice is when an organisation will bring me in and allow me to ask people those difficult questions. Like, what is it that 
you feel has been lacking in work, those people that have come back, what was lacking? Were you aware of the policies and the guidelines in your organisation or did you feel you had to put your hand up and ask and then make yourself vulnerable because everybody knew about your pregnancy quite early on? You know, and again, what it comes down to is, you know, how much are you assuming and how much are you actually listening to the needs of the people and the people that have done this before who have seen where there could be improvements. Yeah, and we're focusing on productivity now, I think. I mean, I know in the UK, they're going to start trialling the four-day week. And I think through the pandemic, people were able to say, do you know what, I'm going to fly up and collect my kids. Or there were parents sitting with babies on Zoom calls rather than just pretending like the swan that everything's fine and underneath there's absolute chaos. And I know to people without kids, sometimes that can be really annoying. They're like, well, why do I get that? But essentially you're getting a better worker and you're getting more productivity when you can be open and honest about the demands on your time. And no one's looking to DOS. People are doing no. jobs that they love and they're committed. Yeah. They just happen to have other people in their lives that are plugged into them at yeah. all times. Can I ask you finally then, Anne, when you're working one-on-one with somebody and you're talking about prioritising self-care. What does that mean? Because as you said, even as a mum, you know, you were suffering from anxiety, you had loads of other things going on and it just felt like it was going to be one more task yeah. to take on. What is your advice for people on, on what self-care is and how to find what's right for you? Well, I would say try if you can to kind of limit what you're looking at on social media when it comes to people telling you what self-care should look like. Self-care is a very personal thing. So I know that the things that energise me might be very different from the things that energise you or the things that make me feel calm and relaxed might be very different from what makes you feel calm and relaxed. So again, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all. I will normally start by asking somebody that question. What energises you? What did you always love to do that when you did it, you always felt topped up, you know, or restored, like your cup was full again? And even if that's something that seems too big to do now, when you have little kids, it's like, okay, well, what's the smallest thing that you could do that would bring about that feeling again? So, you know, for some people, it might have been, oh, I used to go sea swimming four days a week or whatever it may be, you know. So is it something that you could do one day a week or one day every two weeks. So you know that you have that to look forward to. You know, so it's all about just really breaking down what is it that energises you, what tops you up, what makes you feel nurtured, what makes you feel taken care of. Um, And that's what I mean. It's so different for everybody. So it's very hard to say to somebody, this is what you should be doing because I think that's where we fall flat. If we do something that we think just because we've read it in a book or online that that's what self-care is and it doesn't energise us, it can feel like something, another thing that we failed at. Well, yeah. why didn't that work? You know, but start so small. Start Make that small. appointment for yourself yeah. and yeah. stick to it. Even if it's once every two weeks, as you say. Yeah. And the more you feel that and see the benefit yeah. of it, then you'll begin to, to build. But I, like that's my whole ethos when it comes to health and wellness. Take out the should. Don't beat yourself over the back yeah. about it. It's meant to be something that's that's good for you. Exactly. It's meant to be nourishing you, not yeah. knocking and it's, yourself it's down. it's you. It's for you. It's not for anybody else, you know. So that's the thing. When I do things like I, for example, me, I love going down to the farm where we have horses down there, retired racehorses. And 
for me like that, my energy is completely topped up when I do that. So, But for some people, they might think, oh, no interest in walking around a farm all day in wellies. To me, that's very special. So that's what I mean. It's so different. We have to really personalise this and think of what works for us. Well, Anne, I hope you have uh, an hour with the horses booked in for Mother's <laughs> Day today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, in. Claire. Psychotherapist Anne Morgan. You can find out more at sparkback.ie. Thank you so much. Thanks. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey and Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk.